A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that we have that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in the envy, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and, that, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer and the, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is for my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to live in Christ and to die is to gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Joe. So I, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but there's a national election this week. Um, it's been all over the place. I was trying to watch some college football yesterday, and I'm pretty sure uh, five out of five commercials in between were all for election stuff going on. Um, one of the problems is I am recognizing that we are in a time of, because of this or in this election season and everything else going on in our nation, including the, the, the coronavirus and the, the anxiety that produces, is that we are in a place where there's a lot of fear tied around this current election. And I think one of the things that would become very clear in Philippians 1 is that Paul, out of the depth of the gospel, tells us, do not fear. Do not be afraid of an election or anything else. And he says it very clearly in that famous verse in, uh, in Philippians 1.21 that says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter what happens in life or even death, we have nothing to fear if our faith is in Christ. You know, we're looking right now, too, at today being all saints, right? And so just for those of you who don't come from a tradition that looks at this at all, um, a couple things. One is, as we think about November 1 as All Saints, and that's why October 31st was All Hallows' Eve. It was on the eve of the holy day of All Saints' Day. One is to redefine the word saint. I think um, a saint is really anyone who is a Christian, but we do look back historically on those who have gone before us and on whose shoulders we stand. And so whether that is the early apostles or some of the church leaders who suffered martyrdom, uh, even to those who uh, taught and reformed and led the church through the centuries afterwards, to people in our modern day world who have greatly affected it over the previous centuries, and um, out of which many of us have, have grown from the books that they've written or the sermons they've preached or the way that they have transformed the world. And so we stand on that. But 
In particular, All Saints also reflects on those who have given up their lives for the gospel, those who suffered martyrdom. And when we go back to the earliest church, especially those first three centuries, what we find is a church that was uh, existing under a Roman authority that was antagonistic and had animosity and anger towards Christianity. Christianity was not a legal thing for the first 300 years. And Rome was the greatest power that the world had ever known. Every known part of the world in that Mediterranean basin was owned, conquered, and ruled by Rome. They ruled with an iron fist. They were the most powerful and, uh, and most expansive kingdom ever known. They were the epitome of power. And in the first three centuries, the church was the epitome of weakness. They were a marginalized and small group of people. They were outsiders in every community. They were weak. And yet, Rome did not like them. You know, one of the things that's un un unusual is that Rome seemed to tolerate every religion, but they didn't tolerate Christianity. And it's not because Christians weren't good citizens. They were actually the best citizens. They cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. Uh, they gave of themselves when plagues came. They were generous. They basically followed all the rules. But Rome again and again imprisoned and killed them. And it wasn't actually for faith in Jesus. Rome didn't care. You could go believe in that guy. But it was for refusing to also offer offerings and sacrifices to the gods and especially for refusing to pay homage to the emperor the christians the early christians in the first couple centuries because of their allegiance and faith in christ refused to honor caesar as the caesar as the lord as the supreme leader as essentially a savior and god and that's what got them in trouble what got them in trouble was not faith in Christ. It was a refusal to acknowledge the deity of Caesar, refusal to bow to the throne. I wonder if we go to the church today, not 1800 years ago, could the same be said of us today? Are we, are we Christians in the West, in America? Is the church today at any risk of being seen as disloyal to the political powers. Think about that. Most of the persecution and martyrdom of early Christianity was because of their disloyalty to the political powers. Could the same be said of us? Are we at any risk of that? You know, studies have been done on um, the rise of the the nuns, and that is those who no longer affiliate with any religion in particular, and, and the large, overly large number of millennials and Gen Z who have abandoned Christianity. Even though uh, younger generations tend to be less religious, they grow in that, but the numbers are significant. Previous generations did not abandon Christianity at as great a number in their 20s and 30s. But why are millennials and Gen Z leaving Christianity? It is not, it is not primarily because they disbelieve Jesus. 
actually most of them from what I can tell and even studies I've read don't know anything about Jesus. They don't reject Jesus. They don't reject the Christian doctrine. What they reject is what they see as the political and partisan nature of the church today. They see Christianity as too loyal to power and politics. The strange thing is Christianity is actually inherently political. Christianity by itself is inherently political, but not, not in our modern uh, you know, Democratic or Republican Party sort of way. So it's not political in that sense. It's political in the sense that Jesus calls his followers and us, the church, into a culture-transforming counterculture. Jesus called the disciples to be a city on a hill. What one preacher called, um, we are supposed to be the light to the world. We're supposed to shine the uniqueness of the kingdom of God into this world. And, and the way he described it was, we are to be a city within the city. The church is to be a, a countercultural city within every city, a countercultural um, gathering of people who live differently within the culture in which we are citizens. Our primary citizenship is in heaven and in the city of God, even as we live in the city of man. And so in that sense, we are called to be a transforming counter culture. On top of that, Jesus demands primary allegiance to him and to his kingdom. And what was radical about that in Jesus' day, it was a primary allegiance to him and not to your ethnicity, not to your clan or tribe, not to your party or nation, and not even to your family. In a culture that valued family and clan and tribe over everything else, Jesus said, your first allegiance is to me. And today he would say, your first allegiance is to me, not to your family or ethnicity or nation or political party, it is to me. That is inherently a politically challenging message. But I believe having read and studied Jesus for the majority of my life and read him at theological levels and personally devotionally, if Jesus was walking around in 2020 as he did in Palestine in the first century, Based on what he did in the Gospels, I think Jesus would critique, challenge, and praise aspects of both political parties in America today. I think there are aspects of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that he would challenge, critique, and praise. And there are aspects of politics that Jesus never really said much on. And so one of our challenges is not to see in a political party, a direct Christianity. Jesus calls us to always examine these things, to say, what does Jesus say? How am I called to be a Christian in this world? And what things do I need to commit to and value? And which things are less so? And to not confuse the two. Because ultimately, our allegiance and our calling is to Christ and his kingdom so that we can be the best, most involved, transforming culture citizens in the land in which we do live. Christianity will challenge, Christianity will challenge the priorities and values of every society. It will challenge the power structures 
our views of money and sex and what's important, Christianity will challenge the priorities and the values of every society. And in that sense, it is inherently political. But it does so in a very countercultural way. Tertullian, a second century church historian, famously said, although it's slightly misquoted, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You can kill us, wipe us out, cut us down, but the seed will fall and more will rise up. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And on this All Saints Day, one of the things we reflect on is that Christianity has spread the quickest and transformed the culture most when it is not in power, when it is not in positions of power in this world. It's actually been the most fervent and spread the quickest and transformed people's lives and the culture the most where it is persecuted even to death. The transformation of the values of Rome, which did not uh, value uh, the, the the new babies or unborn or the poor. It did not value orphans or widows. Um, it had views of sexuality. It had views of money. It had views of power. They were completely outside of Christianity. And that was transformed by a powerless, persecuted, and killed group of people whose primary allegiance was Jesus Christ. We see this in Philippians, where Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, and he's writing from jail in Rome. So there's Paul in a Roman prison under the greatest power, the greatest authority in the world. They could have killed him at any moment. He had no position or power that really could stand on. He claimed to be a Roman citizen, but really in that culture, in that day and age, as a man in prison, he had no rights, really. He had no way to defend himself. He was completely powerless, and yet he writes this letter of absolute joy, calling the Philippian church to love Christ, to live for Christ, and to love one another and be at peace. And he says, as he's sitting there in a prison, and this is a prison, again, where they didn't even bring you food. The only way you got food was if people came in and exposed themselves as friends of yours. And they could do whatever they wanted to him. And yet he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now look, that's not some sort of death wish. That's not a foolhardy, hey, if I die, I get to go to heaven. So you go and try and put yourself in harm's way. It's not, I'm gonna go driving around without a seatbelt at 100 miles per hour. It's not a death wish, nor is it stoic indifference. That idea of like, I don't care, I've despaired, I give up, and so it doesn't matter if I die or live, my life doesn't matter. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. Rather, he is fearless in the face of death, real, that could be next for him in the next day or two, because he's living for Christ. And when you're living for Christ, you're living for something that circumstances cannot shake. Paul's faith is in Christ, in God's sovereignty. He's living for God's purposes, not his own. And so he is legitimately torn. He's, he's saying, if I live, 
I get to go and spread the gospel. I get to experience Christ, know Christ, enjoy Christ. And I get to be with you again, Philippians. If I live, this is what happens. But if I die, I get to be with and experience Christ in full. So whether I live or I die, Christ, it's a win-win when Christ is foremost. No matter what happens, he can't lose what matters most to him. When Christ matters most, no matter what happens, you can't lose what matters most to you. But one of the things that I found interesting in Philippians is the verse right before this, which I hadn't really noticed as much before. The verse right before this gives some of what's underneath Paul saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians 1.20, he talks about honoring Christ in his body. He writes, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he wants to, his goal is to honor Christ in his body. And that's basically honor is to exalt, lift up, glorify Christ. His view is of Christ as ultimate, and he wants Christ to be seen as ultimate and shown as ultimate through his body, which basically means his whole life, his thoughts, his words, his actions, which includes what he does with his money and his sexuality and what he does with his eating and his drinking and his work and his play and his politics. I want Christ to be ultimate in all parts of who I am. And Paul is saying, I am living for Christ alone. And this affects his approach and view of everything. So how can we do the same? How can we live to honor Christ and to live for Christ alone so that whether we live or die, we are in that freedom and that joy that Paul was in? I think one of the things we need to do is to realize and examine our tendency to view things that aren't Christ as ultimate and to love things more than Christ that aren't Christ. We do that in almost every aspect of our lives, in our relationships, in our career, in what we value and what we're seeking in life, in our identity. But today, because we are a couple of days away from a pretty major election in our country, I want to think about how we can do this in relation to uh, the political world in which we live in. So how can we do the same thing as Paul to honor Christ, even in how we approach this political season? Uh, the first thing is we have to realize how we can replace Christ with other things as ultimate. First thing I want to think about is the way that politics is actually the new religion in America. And we need to be aware of that. You know, there's a decline um, of active faith, the rise of the secular nuns, those who don't affiliate with any religion at all. But it directly corresponds with an increase in political fervor and political party fervor. I, many uh, sociologists have noted that politics and party are the new religion. So people are not primarily Jewish or Christian or Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist. They are Democrats or they are Republicans. It is their, uh, 
where they determine what they believe and what matters and who they associate with in terms of these are my people. It's a sense of identity and belonging and belief. It's the new religion. And secondly, there is this great sense of belonging. I think many of us think that we, we come to political parties because these are my views, but as is true, I've been finding in Christianity, belonging often precedes belief. And not only precedes belief, but determines what we believe. Robert Putnam, in a book that just came out this month called Upswing, traces the trajectory of cultural changes from the 1800s up through the 50s and 60s and back down um, to where we are now in 2020. And one of the things he uh, suggests is that in the most recent 20, 30, 40 years is that people are belonging to a political party and that that is their new cultural um, community. That, in other words, he's saying, we don't reason our way to our political views. Rather, we sign on to a political party that seems to match what we feel are our people. And that tribe, my people, are the people with whom I agree. And so we start to agree with the things that we're told to agree with less than thinking them through. And this corresponds with something else uh, tied to the way that politics can replace Christ is that we are ultimately not thinking creatures. We are loving and desiring creatures. So Jamie Smith has written a number of books on how things, um, the things shape our, our, our thought life based on what we actually love. And he has a book called We Are What We Love. And he basically says, we don't think through our, uh, our commitments and our beliefs so much as we love and desire things. And this is what he writes in one article. Our loves and longings and wants and hungers are not the result of our conscious, rational choices. They are the drivers of those choices. So the things we love most, we don't think about them and say, these are the things I'm going to love. Rather, we love things that then shape what we think and choose in life. And one of the things that we have to be very aware of is politics. This is true in America, and I, I don't know about other countries because I haven't lived there, but politics tell a story about what is good. They, a, a political party is going to describe the good life. These are the things that matter and what's bad. Here's what's good and here's what's bad. And it will shape our loves and fears and loyalties. These are the things that are important. These are the threats to our lives. And this is the group to be loyal to. We often think of ourselves as Christians in the way that we engage in politics this way. We think, I'm a Christian whose political views are shaped by my Christianity. So that's what we think. We think, I'm a Christian whose political views are shaped by my Christianity. But because we are loving and desiring creatures more than thinking creatures, we are vulnerable to being American Republicans or American Democrats whose Christianity conforms to our political and national identity. Hear that again. We think I'm a Christian whose political views are shaped by my Christianity, but I think we're vulnerable. We have to be honest and humble about the fact that we are vulnerable to identifying as Americans and Republicans or Americans and Democrats 
And what ends up happening is our Christianity conforms to our political and national identity and loyalties. In an article that was sent to me from a reading group that came out of the Faith and Law organization, reflecting on Augustine's uh, two cities, City of God, City of Man, the article summarized what happens in politics and how it shapes our loves in this way. In their campaigns, candidates do not merely outline policy proposals. They articulate a vision of a good life, free from certain threats in community with the right kind of people. These narratives are not content to remain at the penultimate level, shaping our political decisions while leaving our theological commitments and spiritual formation unaffected. Like all persuasive, effective stories, they will fight for ultimate status in our lives. Political stories shape our loves and loyalties more often than they convince us intellectually. And that brings us to our ultimate calling, to Christ. Christianity is inherently political. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, but it is an altogether different sort of kingdom, an upside down sort of kingdom. Generally speaking, nearly all politics tells a story of power. And it's the story that, like, if I'm going to put it this one way, it's the story of how to be a lion, how to hunt and kill and take and keep a realm. We're lions with a, with a, a realm, and we're supposed to devour and defeat the enemy and conquer our realm. But the gospel is the story not of taking power and keeping power, but of giving up power. It's the story of the lion who is a lamb and gave himself up on the cross and then calls us to do the same. You want to live in my kingdom? Be a lamb. You want to be in my kingdom? Take up your cross and follow me. The way to life is to lose it for my sake. The gospel is an altogether different set of values, priorities, and loves in which Christ and Christ alone is ultimate, the one we honor in our bodies. And when we do that, when we live out of that place, it's a win-win. No matter what happens, I can't lose what matters most to me. This Tuesday, there will be an election in this country. And to the extent that Christ is my primary and ultimate desire, no matter what happens, I will not be too high or too low. Because the one that I want most to win has already won. He is crucified, he is risen, he is ascended, and he is coming again. Amen?